We're actually seeing companies now starting to, to listen and understand that they need to invest in that uh, design element as well. And it's not normally a, a major thing. It's just getting the look and feel right um, and making sure it's, it's going to work from a usability point of view. So that's that's a very interesting area area of embedded that you know even perhaps two years ago we'd only started um, investing in and, and now that's paying dividends as well. So that that you know, we're only human. If something looks great and it's glossy and it's it's sexy and you know, we're used to so many apps and everything looking so good now when we're on our phone or um, on our computer that we just don't want a boring screen full of numbers and graphs it's just it's not what people want to want to use and what causes people to pay more for software or to just be a loyal customer hey everyone and welcome to for the love of product brought to you by the product-led alliance i'll be your host tiana hansen drury chief product officer at mina technologies and all around fashion product aficionado each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product. And we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Product. I am very pleased to be joined today by Corey Grant. Um, Corey is currently the head of product management at Yellowfin. Yellowfin provides business intelligence software, um, data analytics that is often embedded in other people's software. And that's going to be one of the areas we definitely dig into today because embedded products have a whole different set of opportunities and challenges that uh, are related with them. Corey's background spans almost 20 years working both uh, across many sectors, including automotive, uh, small tech companies. He's worked on vehicle tracking and communications um, in Vancouver, Canada, and then came back to Australia and has worked across many different internet.com brands with some of the world's uh, biggest players before joining Yellowfin two years ago, which is, as I said, an embedded BI reporting and analytics platform. So Corey, thank you so much for joining us. Where are you Zooming in from today? Thank you, Jenna. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, Zooming in from Melbourne, Australia here. So yes, my evening, your morning, and uh, nothing unusual for different time zones here from Australia. Lovely. Well, we're happy to have you. We're happy to have you. So Corey, um, talk to us a little bit uh, about you and your background. Um, you have, as we said in the intro, worked in a very diverse set, not only of products and industries, but also places. Um, and I'm eager to hear a bit about your journey around the globe, but also through product. Uh, take it away. Yeah, so I've always, uh, I guess, uh, loved being in the product community ever since I sort of, like a lot of people way back when, sort of fell into that. Uh, I came from an engineering background and, and worked at Ford on their graduate program and so quickly moved into marketing and then started doing a what was it called, officially called a, a product role. It was a, a product role back then and then started getting more into the technology side of things. So I uh, was working as a business analyst and then up and left Australia for Vancouver in Canada. So I moved to Vancouver and quickly tried to find a role there, which I thought would be quite easy, having worked for a big company that was, you know, obviously well known in Vancouver, in Canada and, and the US. Uh, but it wasn't quite that easy. So sort of rolled in to Vancouver and found that there were quite a lot of uh, people still left over from the, the, the dot-com boom um, because Vancouver is quite a tech hub in, in Canada. So that was quite challenging. 
So it was a something that should have, you know, been at what I thought would have been simpler. Simpler was uh, was actually quite a challenge. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to hear that because I think that's one of the things that people are often very interested in is the product management skill set. How transferable is it when you're moving markets? Um, and hearing a bit about your experience and how you chat, uh, kind of approach that would be useful. Yeah, so at that point, I risk, I didn't really have, I guess, much product management experience. I was trying to get into product management. Um, and yeah, it was it was a great learning experience for me because it was about almost starting from scratch. So without that, I guess, experience behind me, I just did everything I could to try to break in. So quickly found the, the Vancouver Product Management Association, uh, which like all good product management associations, pretty much bases everything around meetings involving dumplings and beer or, or pizza and beer. And, and it was great. It was a great opportunity to meet people working in that space and learn what their challenges were uh, and figure out what was happening there in the industry. Uh, and it was just a matter of, of knocking on doors and reaching out and having as many coffee meetings as I could and finding out how to get in. Uh, and in the end, you know, I sort of lucked into a role that, that fitted with my automotive background uh, that was also in the tech company. But uh, I think, you know, the big learning out of that was, you know, if you can't find something reasonably quickly, exactly in the role you wanted to do in product, um, then take something that, find a role that will actually take you into that area, even if it's sideways or, you know, trying to go in through the back door. That's right. And you, at that time, uh, joined a integrated marketing and sales, a data, a data platform, right, from a product management perspective. What was the product role like for you at that point? What was the main responsibilities? How did it compare with kind of what you had been doing as a product manager back in Melbourne um, for the automotive company? Yeah, so they, uh, that was a basically a telemarketing organization that had a you know, database of all the automotive stores in North America. And very interesting business because there were many facets to the business. So they had the, the telemarketing group that would literally be on the phones trying to drum up business. Uh, we had the, the database that was constantly being scrubbed as part of that, all those calls. And then we were building software on top of that to actually manage uh, all of that, those systems. And it was all homegrown sort of software. So yeah, it, it was great. It was that exposure to like most product roles, all parts of the business, whether it's finance to sort of approve extra heads to work on things, whether it's the, the tech people to actually build sort of what we, we needed to be built. And then also talking to customers and, and talking to, you know, the people working day in, day out, day out with that software and, and what they needed. So it was it was a great, you know, learning curve of, of just uh, that a product role goes across everything in, a, in an organisation uh, and you need to be able to work with all departments and, and all personalities across all of those areas. So in many ways, it sounds very similar to product today uh, in terms of the job responsibilities and uh, core competencies. Yeah, and it was, yeah, this is this is back sort of mid-2000s. So it's it's quite a quite a long time ago in terms of products um, being known as a discipline. Uh, and I think, yeah, the, at the time that Vancouver Product Management Association, having joined that and, and stuck, you know, sort of stuck with that group over many years. I learned so much from just going out and talking to other product managers because um, even today, you know, product management product management is reasonably well defined, and you can sort of find a definition. And, and even though there'll be a slight different implementation at different organisations, it's it's known as a discipline. Back then, it was very very 
early days. Um, and I'd say in those days, it was probably more born out of the marketing side of things rather than the, the development and engineering side of things, uh, which I you know, sort of somewhat prefer. Uh, but it's definitely that uh, it's always been that uh, conduit, I guess, between between marketing and sales and, and engineering. If you think about your product mindset, you know, in the early days uh, versus today, how has that evolved? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think it's just you learn. You know, it's just experience. You learn more and more about what happens. I think um, nowadays I'm probably more focused on trying to focus on the product stuff, uh, product roles. One of the big challenges in product roles is they tend to be the, the catch-all for, for if there's any job or task or question that someone has and no one knows who to go to, they go to the product people and kind of start there and product people try to be helpful and they end up taking on all of these things that need doing by somebody, but should it really be the product person kind of you know, leaving the, the goals and the roadmap and the all of the, the big hitting tasks, um, I, I guess, you know, the, the, everything that should be focused on to a, a achieve the objective that's been agreed on at a, you know, in a certain time frame. You know, do you drop all that and help everybody all the time or do you actually say, look, you know, we can only need you to find more help from someone else in marketing or in sales or in tech around that uh, rather than everything being lumped onto products. So that discipline, I guess, uh, in some ways of sort of saying, okay, uh, I understand that I could help you with this, but you know what, either you need to help yourself or you need to you know, find someone else, or we put it on the queue and we prioritize it along with uh, the for me and other things that are due today. Fair, fair enough. Um, so I can only imagine as a young professional relocating halfway around the world, um, thinking that, you know, you're, you're going to be able to pick up a job pretty quickly and, and as uh, you said, kind of walking into an environment where it was more difficult than you expected must have been challenging. Um, walk us through through kind of what that was like for you, and you know what were the what were the market forces you were facing? Because I do believe you were kind of dealing with something that many listeners now are familiar with, which is the after effect of a recession where very highly qualified people. Um, are in the job market and flooding the job market and competing for more entry-level roles. And that can be really challenging. So talk to us about how you approach that both from an emotional perspective, but also from a practical perspective. Yeah, it is. It's a massive hit to the ego. Um, and I think, yeah, you get it almost ego is a little bit, when you get a massive hit to the ego, it's almost like the stages of grief. You sort of, you, you pretend it's, it's not there anymore and then you kind of accept it. And then you, you sit back and think, okay, how can we, how can we deal with this? Um, so yeah, for me, it was just going back to kind of first principles of, okay, if someone wants to work in this job, how do they get to that job? And I actually, you know, signed up for courses and went and studied the art of, of finding a job, you know, reading, reading books about, um, you know, kissing lots of frogs to find the right, to find a prince. Um, it, it really is getting back to basics of finding a job. And so how do you find a product job? You talk to product people, and then you talk to companies that have product roles, uh, even if they don't have them advertised today because uh, I think most most good managers and, and especially senior product people, we know that we're always trying to build that bench of people to call on when all of a sudden we get extra funding or if someone leaves or an opportunity comes up or through organic growth. So it was it was a great yeah learning curve for, for my whole career, you know, skills that I still use today, probably more than some technical and product skills, um, was actually what to do when you sort of 
faced with that situation of, of too many people and not enough jobs uh, is you have to fight a little bit harder and get a, a little bit more creative and you need to eat a little bit of humble pie. You need to sort of say, okay, I'll, I'll, I might have to drop back in salary. I might have to take a role that's not exactly what I want, but it's adjacent to what I want. So I can do a sideways move or I'm, I'm building skills that will actually get me into that product role eventually. And I, and I think, you know, that if you look at a lot of product people, including senior product people, if you go back, even on LinkedIn, you go over the, the journeys and, and where they've traveled to get to those roles, there's, there's really no one single formula. You know, people come from all walks of life. And, and I think that's what, you know, good companies will hire people with diverse backgrounds because that's really what brings strength to an organisation. If we were all came out of the same academy with the same course and we all did the same jobs all in a row, then, you know, life would be pretty boring and, and so would product in, you know, in an organisation. Absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the things that oftentimes people... Um are less aware of is that need to take a step back or a sidestep in order to keep progressing forward. Um, and I think it's good to hear someone like you who is, you know, obviously had a very accomplished career and in, in product uh, explain that you too have had to do that. Uh, and for the record, I too have had to do that. Uh, so I think that's a common, a common uh, success tactic, right? And it is a bit of that humble pie. Yeah, it's character forming. I think everyone should be, you know, have to fight for a job at some point, maybe get fired along the way or be made redundant. Uh, it's, yeah, it's part of what's going to come at some point. So, um, you yeah, know, don't stress if it happens early in your, in your career or or even later in your career. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about what product management is like on the west coast of uh, you know North America, um, as opposed to product and the community in APAC and uh, Melbourne, where you are. Um, oftentimes, people don't have the privilege of working in completely different, um, not only time zones but also cultures and levels of maturity of uh, of a discipline. So, how, what are the similarities? What are the differences? Um, speak to us about your experiences there yeah it's uh so I, I returned to australia about 10 years ago so you know things have obviously ramped up in product management uh, since then and apac uh has a very strong product culture and lots of great organizations to sort of work with uh here so volunteer organizations and professional organizations uh lots of conferences and meetups and all of those sorts of things uh so i think apac's yeah much closer to to North America now than, than we were 10 years ago. Uh, but I think in some ways probably the difference is uh, things still happened or started happening a little bit earlier in North America and especially on the West Coast. You know, the, most of the tech, big tech companies have, have come out of Silicon Valley and, and California. So I think what's happened is uh, in the US, the rest of the organisation is perhaps a little bit more accommodating of product and aware of, of what, you know, product does and where it fits in and um, you know, where the boundaries are between the, the departments and, and the roles, whereas APAC is maybe a few years behind that. But uh, yeah, having said that, there's plenty of product people and plenty of tech companies and plenty of things happening you know, in APAC and, and all over the world that are really pushing boundaries and um, you know, doing things. And I know Australia especially, but APAC in general, uh, we've always been sort of a little bit more remote from Europe or North America. So we've always had to fight that that little bit harder. Um, and yeah, we, we uh, I think it's, it shows in the, in the results. There's a lot of great tech coming out of APAC now um, and a lot of great product people as well. 
Absolutely. Yeah. In my last role, we had um, a strong APAC uh, presence and I was always, and this has been the case actually thinking back about all the times working with our APAC regions over my career, they're just hungry and they're just willing to do uh, the extra work. As you say, I think that's a by, um, by factor of the time zone differences, right? But also the the technical advancement and the kind of leapfrogging of several of the um, kind of from a technology evolution perspective uh, that happened in APAC because of adoption of things like mobile phones and kind of bypassing a lot of the, the web experiences, uh, desktop experiences, I would imagine um, it's created a very vibrant product community uh, there. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think too, Australia's, Australia and New Zealand, um, which were traditionally the strong markets in APAC, um, you know, now we, we're getting a, a lot of uh, education and I guess um, innovation coming out of, of the more, you know, of a lot of the Asian countries. So whether it's Vietnam or Malaysia or Philippines or wherever, there's there's so much happening. And um, as you said, they're, they're, they need to be, they know they need to be hungrier than everybody else. Uh, so they are. Uh, and they're also, they're just, you know, there's no fear. It's like, okay. And there's a younger, you know, the younger countries as well. The average age is younger. They're, um, they're more upwardly mobile. They're, they're, they're looking more global. Um, so yeah, it's really exciting. It's certainly, um, certainly a, an interesting and exciting place to be. Absolutely. Well, good for people looking for talented uh, professionals to join their team, uh, a market you don't want to miss. Um, so Corey, talk to us a little bit about where you're at today, which I uh, I find very interesting. Um, certainly we can talk about the brand, but also what I find most interesting is the fact that it's an embedded product. And I think that those people who have worked with the embedded products understand that there is huge opportunity, but there's also different challenges that you have to think about um, as opposed to doing a standalone um, uh, product. So, so walk us through what you're doing today, uh, what the product does, um, and maybe we can talk a bit about that embedded nature. Yeah, so business intelligence uh, software that Yellowfin does. Uh, so data analytics, data visualization, charts, dashboards, everybody, I guess, knows the basics of business intelligence. Um, and then, then there's some other uh, additional sort of areas that we in particular focus on, uh, something we call signals, which is essentially um, AI and machine learning constantly running algorithms over your entire uh, data set as it's feeding in. So it's time-based to actually pick out uh, any anomalies. Uh, so you haven't got you know, you haven't got a thousand data analysts sitting there searching for something, the computer power does that for you and, and just presents you know, suggests, hey, you should take a look at these 10 things rather than having to wade through, you know, millions and million, millions of data points. Uh, and storytelling is another area. So we have a, a storytelling product, which uh, as I think we all know, the, the power of storytelling you know, supported by data is, is much more powerful than just the data itself. So it's, yeah, a, a BI, you know, most BI tools now are, are very deep and, and very broad and they're very complex. Uh, so the, the trick then is to make them sort of easy to, you know, easy to use and easy to to get set up. Um, it'll, you know, my um, CTO has a, a saying that um, you'll never make BI simple, but you can make it simpler. So we're we're constantly trying to make things simpler, and yeah, embedded is a is a good example of that. So um, embedded is is one of our strengths, and I think we've got, you know, we 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 do have some 
enterprises that, that will embed our software, but, but often we are selling to independent software vendors. So other software companies that want to add analytics to their product, they very quickly learn that it's much easier to take something off the shelf than to try and build it themselves. Uh, and you know, the, there's so many different ways that they want to approach it. Some people want to use a, a full, fully ready um, sort of white labeled version. They can just put their own coloring and branding on, which we can do. Some people want to just use their own uh, UI and actually have our, our charts or tables or dashboards and other features embedded in that, uh, which we also do. Uh, so what we're seeing a lot more now is uh, that design actually becomes, uh, designers actually become a heavy part of that embedded experience because yes you can have a wonderful developer uh, can technically make something work within their product but if it doesn't look good and the ui doesn't work and it doesn't go with the look and feel of what the original design of their software um, was all about then it's it really doesn't have the value so uh, we're, we're actually seeing companies now starting to to listen and understand that they need to invest in that uh, design element as well and it's not normally a, a major thing it's just getting the look and feel right um, and making sure it's, it's going to work from a usability point of view so that's that's a very interesting area area of embedded that you know even perhaps two years ago we'd only started um, investing in and, and now that's paying dividends as well so that that you know we're only human if something looks great and it's glossy and it's it's sexy and you know, we're used to so many apps and everything looking so good now when we're on our phone or um, on our computer that we just don't want a boring screen full of numbers and graphs it's just it's not what people want to want to use and not what causes people to pay more for software or to just be a loyal customer yeah i really identify with that design piece i i also work on an embedded product and i think it's one of the things i've been pushing us to understand more is if you provide, you know, and I hate to get into more consultancy, but at least in my space, you do need to do a bit of consulting with the customer to help them understand, you know, like you said, not just even the, you know, attractive look and feel, but also the design journey, the discovery journey, where is the embedded product being placed within their application? Um, so I, I find that a very interesting space. I'm also a huge fan of product design. What have you guys chosen to do? How have you approached it at Yellowfin? Like, do you have a design team that sits within product? Do you have a design team that sits within customer engagement, uh, all of the above? Like what's your guys' strategy? Yeah, so generally uh, we have a new prospect um, who's looking to start using the product. We'll introduce that concept of design fairly early. Uh, and often you know, if they're doing a proof of concept or they, they want to go and build something, we'll include, you know, we have a, a sort of what we call launchpad, a startup package. Uh, because we know that if we just leave people to their own devices, it's it's pretty tough. You've got a complex, you know, you have so many options to choose from. How do you make a choice when you're trying to embed something in your product? Um, so there, there are some hours in there where we, we have technical people and design people um, that sort of say, look, here's kind of the art of the possible. Here's what you can do. Um, talk to us about what you'd like to do. Let's do something very basic for your you know, initial assessment. And then from there, you know, most customers kind of get it. So uh you know we have some templates and things available but most you know mostly it comes down to either they'll try and engage us or we'll recommend someone that can provide that design service for them uh and it's yeah like like a a lot of things where you're trying to something that's so important in your product and getting it right is kind of worth investing that little bit extra beyond just the technical people to make it work so yeah there's a there's a whole variety of 
options that we that we give people, whether it's us providing the assistance, whether it's known partners, whether it's just saying you need to find this sort of you know um, design resource locally, we'll help them out and and you know whatever works for them. Sounds uh, sounds interesting, and like lots of people can learn from that. I I think you're right. It is emerging in terms of that, but it's incredibly important. I think we'll only see that grow. Um, one of the things that Yellowfin is known for doing, and I I think it would be interesting to hear you talk about your guys' journey in this space as well, is do- uh, dog fooding, right? Or using your own product. Um, so you guys are exceptionally good at this. Um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how that originated. Have you have Has it always been that way? Um, was that also a journey for you? Talk to us about why it matters and how it started. Yeah, I, I think I like to think we're probably one of the, the extreme examples uh, where we, we kind of live and breathe our, everything we do is is sort of built around our own product. So I think it started off uh, many, many years ago. Yelvin is sort of almost 20 years old. So started off many years ago with just you know, when they were a small team saying, okay, let's we need we need testers for our product. So let's can, can you jump in and, and try and build something or could you jump in and see how this report or this dashboard works for you? Uh, and it's just evolved over time now that we've got um, as a, sort of our own massive data sets, whether it's pulled out of Salesforce as our CRM or um, you know, other accounting systems. And there's there's a lot of, you know, when, when new hires join a company, they're often shocked as to, to what is available. We basically, you know, most of our financials and pretty much our whole, the way our whole company runs um, is available for anyone to, to jump in and pull up reports and see what's happening. Um, and that openness is part of the culture and it really shows through that there's, a, there's that level of trust from the very top down. Um, but it, it also it's, you know, people jump in and, and look around and, and find things. But yeah, for, for pretty much, you know, choose an area of the company, whether it's finance or it's sales or it's marketing, you know, we're, we're pulling out data and sticking it, um, you know, into, into, our, uh, into our massive data set and manipulating that and constantly building you know, reports and dashboards and, and having alerts and all of those sort of things um, set up signals as well, set up uh, so that everyone in the company is constantly interfacing and, and using that product. And it's, it's great. It does mean that, you know, sometimes internally we'll, we'll do, you know, really roll out our new software internally. Sometimes our internal users will actually find things that, you know, we would have normally only found later when something was rolled out to a customer uh, that QA might've missed. So, um, it works very well, and I, and I think it's also just that the hands-on with the product, everyone feels a lot closer to it. You know, I think most people who work in finance or marketing for a, a tech company don't really get that hands-on um, day-to-day with their own product. Yeah, I think that's one of the things you also called out uh, that was different about uh, Yellowfin than maybe some of the companies you've worked at in the past is how closely your finance team is involved um, and collaborative with you. Uh, why do you think that is? Is it because they have a better understanding of the product and they they know how it's working or is there something else driving that? Yeah, maybe. Uh, I think, again, it's a little bit cultural. Of, everyone's sort of very open and transparent, but um, no, we just have great finance people who are willing to sort of say, okay, you've asked me for this, let's talk about what it is and, and dig into um, how they can actually help us to get things. So whether that's building a report, finding information, pointing us in the right direction, uh, sort of helping you know, when we're trying to put, put together a, a business case, whether it be a new external vendor or it might be a, you know, whether we buy this 
um, you know, this roadmap tool or whatever it is, uh, it's very hands-on. So it's it's not just bean counters sitting there saying, you know, no, I need three levels of sign-off and, and, you know, this is, you know, how do you fill out all the forms correctly? It's actually the right questions and jumping in and having calls with you know, external parties to ask the right questions and getting involved. So I, I just think it's it's wonderful to work with people that, that you know, are so hands-on and, and so, so proactive and uh, know that it does happen in some places, but it certainly has not happened in every place that I've worked. So talk to us um, a bit about, you know, what's happening um, with Yellowfin today. It's a, obviously a very hot space, BI, as you mentioned, um, and there there is quite a bit of competition in there. What are you guys looking at? How are you guys looking at the future? What trends are influencing what's on your guys's kind of outcomes list uh, today? Yeah, so I think uh, we spent a lot of last year working on uh, guided NLQ, so a natural language query product. Uh, and, I, and I think quite a few of our big competitors had sort of natural language query products out in the last couple of years. And frankly, most of them have sort of fallen fairly flat. And even the analysts are turning around saying, well, we're not sure NLQ was all that was you know, sort of promised and we're not sure it works the way it should. And you know, we're hearing reports of people sort of they'll buy a, a product now. <clears throat> I mean, knowing there's NLQ in there, but then not really actually make use of it. So we sort of sat back for a little bit and waited until we really had a product that we were confident with and that people would use and is very practical. And yeah, guided without, obviously I'm a little bit biased, but yeah, guided NLQ is, is really the way to go. So you, you essentially can't ask a question that the system cannot answer. So it, it guides you as to how you build that, that question. Uh, and it's even, you know, some of the, the reports that come back are, are quite complex. So reports that might take you quite a while to build, you know, if you just click by click through the system, uh, if you know, once you sort of start to, to use guided NLQ a little bit, um, you quickly figure out that some of those reports can actually be created just by asking, uh, typing in a question. So it, it really is amazing. And again, in terms of usability, you know, we've seen customers and prospects uh, liking the product, but internally, um, it's amazing how many people are just now just that's the first thing they'll do. They'll, they'll click on ask a question and they'll jump in and, and try guided NLQ first. And most of the time it's working for them. So it's it's great to see that, um, that popularity, I guess, of, of a new feature and, and you know, proofs in the pudding of people actually using it, which is great. For our listeners, you maybe are less familiar with how that journey would look uh, compared with maybe a, a more standard one. Give us a practical example. What's a what's a question that might be asked? Um, how would the how would the journey differ? Um, give us uh, explain it to us like you're explaining it to your grandmother. <laughs> uh, yeah. So essentially, if you wanted to compare um, one region's sales to another region's sales, uh, and you wanted to drill down by a certain time period, and you wanted to know if Joe in Alaska has sold more or less than Mary in Florida, uh, then you can ask that question. And if you, you can say for the last month and then you can drill down further into certain products, et cetera. So it's it's something that, you know, everyday questions that you, you know, a regular business user might normally run off to a, a data analyst to actually find um, the answer to, you can actually ask yourself. So it is literally those everyday questions of, okay, we've got all of this, this data. Surely someone can tell me if I'm doing better, 
you know, if one area is doing better than they were last month, uh, and if if you know something is running out of, of stock in this area compared to, to that area, what was predicted, etc. So, so many different ways of you know just um, getting in there where you you often and again it's that language thing when you put it back to natural language, people can say, oh, I just want to compare this this data with an, you know the same thing in a different state or in a different time or for a different person. Uh, whereas you know the way. Uh, most business users think it's challenging for them to sort of go, okay, I don't really know where to start in terms of just jumping in and building my own reports or building my own charts. It just feels a bit you know, more overwhelming. So it's it's great that people can just jump in and, and do the, the simple things quickly and get going. Um, and then as they sort of use it more and more, they, they, they can figure out how to dig in and ask more advanced questions. And the prompt feature, or um, so I want to see if Joe's sold more in Alaska, is the UI just that I see a series of selected like questions I can ask, or you know, how does that work? Yeah, it's almost like an autofill. So the autofill, um, you know, if, if you start with compare, it'll then give you do you want to compare time? Do you want to compare sort of revenue? Do you want to compare sales? Do you want to compare people? You know, and it, it's it's that autofill sort of feature. So you, it's very easy to just go, okay, select, select, select four or five items and then bang, you've got your query and off you go. Nice. Makes sense. Uh, makes sense. So um, your, your organization, you know, we've talked a little bit about things that make it unique, right? You guys have a lot of dog fooding or using of your own product. Um, you tend to work fairly closely across the business um, finance. You've given us that example, but I think uh, it really makes sense when you say that everybody is using the product. Obviously, then there's a lot more connectivity across the, the company, right? Because they understand the product, they can ask more questions, et cetera. Um, how do you guys approach kind of the product organization and structure? Is it, uh, is it something that's also fairly unique for Yellowfin as well? Or have you used more of the kind of same playbook that you've done in your career? Um, how do you guys approach organizational uh, velocity and formation? Yeah, so it was interesting. Um, sort of just over two years ago when I joined Yellowfin, they were doing a lot of great product things in terms of process, but no one really called it product management. Uh, so there were you know, there's no one really with a product title. It was it was often done by the so the CTO and the CEO and sometimes the COO and, and you know the founders of the company and the the senior um, technical leadership. So. Um, mainly what I came in to do was to put some formality around that and actually put sort of, you know, product roles in place. Um, and it's, it's interesting now. I think what I might've found was the actual core product is, was so strong that in many ways um, it could almost be left alone in terms of product management um, to put some processes around that to sort of track things and measure things. But really the main area for improvement was everything around that core product. Um, and in, in some ways, I think that's where product management, you know, a lot of people coming through product management today don't necessarily look at that whole business and sort of say, okay, I can do things outside of the core software product. Um, so, yeah, if you actually looked at my time in the last couple of years, it's, I've spent more time working on you know, getting documentation up to scratch and getting processes behind that and hiring document tech, tech writers to do documentation which flows into training, um, vendor relationships to fill holes in our um, product offerings. So, you know, we're great at core product, but if we, if we want to do things um, 
that sort of round out what someone's looking for, whether it's databases or hosting or whatever it is that isn't part of our core offering, then you know, vendor relationships are part of that. So I've been heavily involved in getting a lot of that up and running as well. Uh, and just a lot of those things that are yeah, not necessarily core technical software product stuff. It's it's everything around that. And I think that makes you know more complete company which which then of course be really the, the the product is more than just your, your core software um it, it's it's the whole journey that someone goes on so you know we're doing a lot of work on breaking down that those um the customer journey and making sure we've got the right resources for for prospects as they go through we've got the right resources for customers uh, you know when they're new to the product when they're onboarding and when they're actually rolling out the product themselves and then through to support for you know customers are getting that have been around for years, but are you know, upgrading and getting into the more technical deep areas of our, our product as well. So there's always more to do, but it's um, you know, it's interesting. I think rounding out that product is something that not everyone immediately thinks of in terms of product managers doing, but uh, that's the biggest opportunity for our company. So that's, that's the focus. Uh- any tips for other listeners who are coming into an organization where there may be strong kind of practices that are actually product related, but not a conscious, you know, uh, product um, name associated with it and, and how you kind of approached educating the senior stakeholders um, on why, you know, you were taking the approach that you were taking, right? And not going core product only, but actually looking at the entire product journey. Yeah, I was actually talking to someone about this last week. It, I think it's, you know, when I look back at all the different roles I've done, because they're smaller, the, all the smaller companies, pretty much every time I was either one of or I was the first product person in the organisation. Uh, and it's often, or it is, it's always the founders or the, you know, the CEO and the, the CTO or whoever who kind of do all of that product stuff, but they also do a zillion other things. So uh, it's always been about kind of wrestling control of the, each product element away from those those founders and those you know those senior people, uh, and actually putting it under product management. And for them to let go enough to go and do more C level things that they should be doing, they have to trust that that you'll do the right thing by the product and by the company. So it's it's a matter of building trust, I think, with those those people. Um, so the process has helped. As, as always, putting some some actual processes and cadence around things, and you know, actually giving them you know the the comfort that the right people will be involved, the right you know questions will be asked, and the right output uh, should come out of things. But uh, it is always about sort of building that trust with the, the founders, and then pulling you know, and sometimes it literally is kind of wrestling that product away from them. Um, and it's all about trust that they need to trust that. Uh, the things that you'll do will actually benefit the company and they can relax their focus and, and stop sort of putting time and energy into that and go and put time and energy into scaling and growing the business. Perfect. Well, I think that sounds like a great place, uh, a great place to, to come to my favorite question of any show, which is um, all related to if there was a museum in the world dedicated to the most important products, um, what would you say should be in there and why? Uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I think uh, being you know, sort of studied engineering and having a more technical background, I, I do you know, a lot of practical things. I think electricity, I think people forget just how magical electricity is and, and how we how, how different life would, would be without it. 
and I guess following on from that, um, I'm a bit of an audio nerd, so I love everything speakers and uh, audio related. So I still think it's quite magic that you know design that's probably a hundred years old now is of a, a loudspeaker is still something that just makes such beautiful music. And whether it's in the car or in the house or in a headphone pushed into your ear, it's just amazing that um, that someone designed that and it works. It's it's fantastic. So. Uh, yeah, that's that's probably probably the museum for me. I think the, the first place that I'd be I'd be looking. Couldn't agree more. What song would be playing over your loudspeaker if you were doing that exhibit? Well, I had the pleasure of uh, going to see Midnight Oil, an Australian band, uh, my favourite band, on Saturday night on their farewell tour. I think their first sort of uh, album was out in. Uh, the late seventies, so they've been around for quite a long time, but uh, it was it was fantastic. So if uh, if you don't if you're outside of Australia and you're not a Midnight Oil fan, then um, I do encourage you to to look it up and and turn it up loud. So I, don't make me choose a song, but that would be the band. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, for all of those uh, leaving us today, go find Midnight Oil on your your streaming platform of choice or record store of choice. And uh, with that, Corey, thank you for joining us today and sharing a bit of your journey. It's been fascinating to hear um, and looking forward to uh, following you and Yellowfin's success. My pleasure, Tiana. Thank you very much for the time. It's appreciated. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the Product-Led Alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.